Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. So 99, 99, 99, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Bienvenidos bitches and buiti binafi for my Garifuna listeners. Yo, I just found out that we are the top four true crime show in Belize on the wow. Belize charts. That's and I so told cool. my mom that I was like, are you finally proud of me? <laughs> uh anyway and is she uh yeah i mean she always says yes but i mean does she mean it? <laughs> you just don't believe it i don't believe it because i'm not a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer <laughs> i just do a podcast but anyway uh so shout out to all of our listeners let me tell you something fruit loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about contrary to popular belief not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes what? no ma'am there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and fruit loops is a podcast all about them we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all of our social media the footnotes for each episode episode can be found on our website plus check it out for some different ways you can support the show and become a fruit loops patron yeah so who are we talking about today beth today we're talking about david bullock a man who between december 1981 and january 1982 killed at least six people in new york city New York City. <laughs> new york city <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into it how you doing I'm good. Um, I got to do something fun this weekend. Fun during a pandemic. I know. Tell me I more. know. <laughs> so when my sister lived here before she moved to Canada, um, my friend, my sister Minnie and I would get together every so often for a movie night. Oh. We'd have dinner and watch a movie together. Mm -hmm. And we haven't been able to do that for years since my sister moved to Canada. Mm -hmm. But on uh, Saturday, we did it on Zoom. Oh, that's <laughs> fucking dope. Oh, I my know. God. I shared my screen and we watched the movie together. And it was really, really fun. And I think we're going to be doing a lot more of that. 
I love that. Yeah. I highly recommend it. That is an excellent idea. Everybody's got to get a little bit creative this year. We did um, with my family a bingo night. We've been doing a bingo night every month and people can win money. And uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I have uh, 70 first cousins and 16 aunts and uncles. (laughs) So does everybody play? No, not everybody plays. So this this call um, was probably the least we've had. So there was about um, maybe 10 people, but everybody had their kids playing, too. Um, And it was fun. And, um, you know, it was just a, kind of a nice distraction. And I think yeah. people getting creative on what to do on Zoom to stay connected. Yeah. Rather than just dope. like talking because I'm yeah. tired of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like my daughter is going to um, be six. And last year we had a princess birthday party. I'm not having right. y'all coming over to my house during mental uh, like a global pandemic. Are you yeah. crazy? So we have to figure out a way to like Either have people do a drive by, make it fun or like a a Zoom call in and say happy birthday or something. But, yeah, I think what you did is a good idea. I think the bingo thing is a good idea. And anything that you guys are doing. Any other kind of game or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sh- uh, like get at us. Tell us what you're doing to pass the time yeah. on on Zoom and have some fun. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to get into some listener letters. Oh, hello, angels. Thank you. <sighs> so nice. What's in the bag, Beth? We got an Instagram message from Johnny who said, just finished listening to the Kansas City Strangler episode. You guys asked what the significance of the missing shoes could be. I thought maybe it's a shoe fetish or maybe it's it was significant to them being sex workers or streetwalkers as they were referred to at some point in time. Hmm. Taking the shoes was some kind of symbol for them taking a last walk with him. Ooh, I love that take and yeah. uh, like taking their last walk with Gilliard. You know what? That deserves all the hip hop. <laughs> Damn, yeah. that's a yeah, good thanks, one. Johnny. Thank you, Johnny. Johnny. Yeah. Angel. You're an <laughs> angel to me. <laughs> love it. So we got another one uh, that said, hey, ladies, Meg here reporting from the dumpster fire that is California. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're on fire again. Yeah, Shout out to everyone. Yeah, Stay yeah. safe out there, y'all. Yep. I'm a queer black British woman of color, and I cannot tell you how appreciative I am of this podcast you both have created. I was peppered when I, I like that. I was I peppered like too. <laughs> when I stumbled upon this gem. I listened to a lot of true crime podcasts on my hour and 15 minute commute to work. Woo! Doing <laughs> that the is work. something. Yeah. yeah. She says, I'm a nurse and a very tired nurse, mm. but yours is the first I can relate to and genuinely enjoy. Wow, that is a really nice compliment. Thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah. So much that I'm now a patron. And thank you again. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I would never give my money to other podcasts because white people have enough help by just existing. That doesn't hey. include you, Beth. <laughs> That's right. That's right. She's on the favorite white lady list. <laughs> but I will support and spread your podcast to my other queer POC, WOC, true crime fans. Wendy, thank you for being a voice for women of color and acknowledging the fact that the news is is racist allegedly (laughs) (laughs) beth thank you for being an ally white women need to take notes love you ladies may may thank you so much oh my gosh um i just felt like i was in a movie like being knighted to hear this british person saying these nice things (laughs) i i was just listening to you say the words with my head bowed like waiting Waiting for the sword. <laughs> for the sword, yeah. Come upon to touch, my shoulders. Touch your shoulder. Yeah, that's what, yeah. that's what that shout out felt like. Aww, that, was, that is so, nice. so lovely. Thank you so yeah. much. May also gave us a great tip on how not to get murdered out here in these streets. So stay tuned for that. That is correct. We also got some new patrons, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hip hop so, Absolutely. So to Fincher H, I'm not trying to get your government names out here, you know, like put you all on blast on front street so i'll just do finch h maybe and a uh podbean patron julie w who actually requested a tune uh she said do up 
uh, is her favorite. It's mine too. It was the anthem of my youth. Uh, I hope you love this and I don't fuck it up. (laughs) (laughs) Finch, you know you better watch out. Maybe, maybe is only about Julie, Julie, Julie. True crime, true crime, true crime. Ow! Ah, you did it. <laughs> Good job. Well, thank you, you nailed very it. much. And yeah. I hope you all liked your tune. We truly appreciate your support. Yes, Couldn't we do. Couldn't do this without any of you. Nope. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, props where props are due. So now we're going to take a, a little break and we're going to get back to the story when we come back. Hi, I'm Sunny Hepburn. And I'm Brandy Fleets. And we're from Book Book of Lies, Lies, the podcast, where we discuss liars, cheats, and thieves, scammers, and dirty, rotten scoundrels. You can tune in for new episodes every Tuesday to hear about another lowdown, dirty liar. And learn how to spot them. So that's Book of Lies podcast. You can connect with us on social media, Twitter at Book of Lies Pod, Facebook, and Instagram at Book of Lies Podcast. Bye. So we're back. Uh, Beth, remind us who we're talking about again. David Bullock, a man who went on a killing spree in New York City between December 1981 and January 1982, murdering at least six people, male and female, gay and straight. Ooh, okay. So now it's time for the stats. There we go. David Bullock, a.k.a. the Happy Killer, a.k.a. the Fun Killer, was born on November 13th, 1960. He has six murder victims. Speak their names and rest in power kings and queens. James Weber was 42. Edwina Atkins was 23. Stephen Hassel was 29. Michael Winley was 28. Eriberto Morales was 50 and Eric Fuller was 28. As Beth said, his crimes took place in December 1981 to January 1982. He shot most of his victims with a 38 revolver and one with a sawed-off shotgun. His crimes took place in New York. Concrete jungle where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do. And then Bullock (laughs) pled guilty to six counts of second degree murder and was sentenced to six life terms in prison. And when you find out why he did all this, you're going to die. Now (laughs) we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is New York City in the early 80s. But since context is everything, we are going to give you a little taste of the history of New York. Well, Native New Yorker is a trash hot wing restaurant here in the Valley in Arizona. You agree with me, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay, thank you. It's not just me. Uh, But I'm very particular about my hot wings. Okay. Uh, But the true Native New Yorkers are the Lenape. Uh, The area that they're an indigenous Native American tribe, the area the Lenape occupied before the Europeans arrived was known to them as Lenapehoking, and it covered roughly the area between New York City and Philadelphia, including all of New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania and part of the state of Delaware. And they were minding their own goddamn business when the Dutch arrived in the 17th century. Every time. To what is now New York City. Mm. Interactions with the Lenape were at first mostly amicable. They shared the land, traded guns, beads, and wool for beaver furs. The Dutch then, quote-unquote, purchased Manhattan Island from the Lenape in 1626. Every time I hear about these, quote-unquote, purchases and the the thievery and the fuckery, it just makes me really upset. Makes your blood boil. Yeah, Yeah, because... um, It's just really unfair and sinister, and we are supposed to accept it because now the land has been taken, right? We're on stolen land, every single one of us. Um, The Lenape likely viewed the quote-unquote sale of Manhattan as a deal to share the land, but not to sell it. The Dutch complained, wah, wah, fucking wah, about their frustrations with the sale in letters that they wrote to each other, saying, quote, the savages would not remove from the land that they had bought, to which the indigenous people responded that they had only sold the grass on the land, not the land itself. 
that is so profound. And I yeah. feel like it's a hip hop air horn. I'm sorry, but it gets one. Yes. Um, they had a really hard time understanding what the fuck the Dutch were talking about. Like, because <laughs> yeah. they don't, they didn't own the land. Nobody does, right? Nobody does. Yeah, that was their point of view. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of thought the Dutch were a little crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now I do. And I fucking hate their guts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they did some shitty things in Africa, too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Just leave people alone. All over. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, in the 1660s, the Dutch built a wall around what was called New Amsterdam to keep the Lenape and the British out. Some say this is where Wall Street first got its name and more on that later. This was the beginning of the Lenape's forced mass immigration out of their homeland. The atrocities and crimes against indigenous people by American and Canadian governments continues to this day. Indeed. Um, I think we said it before that uh, indigenous people are the among or they are the poorest group of people in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um Wall Street uh, has ties to slavery. Surprise, surprise. Um, Dutch and British settlers relied on enslaved people to establish their farms and build new towns and cities that would eventually become the United States. Enslaved people built the wall after which Wall Street is named. If you find yourself in New York City, you might check out the New York City slavery and the Underground Railroad walking tour. Um, yeah, it looks pretty very interesting. Cool. Yeah, and I yeah. also read that they have Lenape monuments around yeah. the city. Um, yes, to sort of try to um, correct, course correct, <laughs> and uh, the history. For, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's something. So yeah, it's something. Yeah. yeah. Actually, anytime you travel somewhere, try to find something like that. Immerse yourself in a little bit of history. That is a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. New York received 40% of U.S. cotton revenue through the money its financial firms, shipping business, and insurance companies earned. Slavery was introduced to Manhattan in 1626, but it was not until December 13, 1711, that the New York City Common Council made Wall Street the city's first official slave market for the sale and rental of enslaved Africans and Indians. Wall Street was also the marketplace where owners could hire out their slaves by the day or week. Initially, buying and selling and trading slaves was conducted privately, and some enslaved people uh, were even sent out to find their own work. But in 1711, because the presence of so many Black people out looking for work made white people very anxious quote all negro and indian slaves that are let out would be hired at the market house of the wall street slip end quote the slave market that was erected operated to buy sell and trade human beings from 1711 to 1762 at the corner of wall and pearl streets it was a wooden structure with a roof and open sides although walls may have been added over the years it could hold approximately 50 people many people don't know this but the location of central park in new york was inhabited by black people um, before they built the park uh, seneca village began began in 1825 when Andrew Williams, a 25-year-old African-American shoe shiner, bought three lots of land. Epiphany Davis, a store clerk, was the second person to buy land there, and she bought 12 lots. And AME, African Methodist Episcopal, purchased several lots, and it was on and popping from there. By the 1830s, 100 of the residents were black men who were eligible to vote. Many were property owners and lived in two-story homes. Most of the children who lived there attended school in Seneca Village. In the early 1850s, the city planned to put in a large municipal park to counter, quote, unhealthful urban conditions. And I read that and thought it was code for get rid of the non-white bodies, their non-white ways and their non-white things uh, and provide space for recreation. Um, At the time, there were 225 residents and 60 percent of them were black. 30 percent were Irish immigrants and a small number of the rest were of German descent. In 1853, the New York State Legislature enacted a law that set aside 775 acres of land in Manhattan to create the country's first major landscaped public park. 
The land was acquired through eminent domain, which allows the government to take private land for public use with compensation paid to the landowner. So black landowners in Central Park were compensated, but their land was undervalued, of course. And that's a process that is still done today to black homeowners and landowners. All landowners left by 1857. New York in the 1980s, uh, fast forward a little bit, New York in the 1980s was an altogether different city from the safe, clean, for the most part, cosmopolitan urban urban playground that it is today. Homicides were at a near record high. The crack epidemic was raging and New York City had not yet experienced the wave of gentrification that has marked it in modern times. There was an increase in poverty, job loss and economic insecurity, especially in poor black and brown neighborhoods that contributed to street crime, sex work, child abuse and domestic partner abuse. It was the height of the crack cocaine epidemic and heroin use was high as well. Bryant Park in Times Square was nicknamed Needle Park because of the widespread heroin abuse. And welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. The crack epidemic then is not unlike the opioid epidemic now. The difference is that it wasn't a crisis worthy of humane solutions because the victims were poor people, black people, and brown people. And with opioids, the victims are mostly white. Yeah. Communities that are lacking jobs, adequate schools, and resources to allow people to thrive instead of barely survive are inhabited by people who are understandably under stress, kind of like how we see now with the um, ramifications of COVID, right? People are under stress. Economic and social uncertainty make high-risk crime a means to survive. And part of surviving includes finding ways to cope or tolerate the bleakness of their realities by using substances. I just wanted, I mean, people aren't like using crack and heroin because it's so fun or like robbing people because it's, it's so fun. Everybody's just trying to survive. So yeah. Yeah. And all of the activity in the poor black and brown neighborhoods in New York in the eighties contributed to an increase in the presence of law enforcement. However, it mostly contributed to the decimation of these already vulnerable populations in these communities. Times Square was uniquely intoxicating and entertaining. It was a mix of grand theaters and an increasingly bolder adult entertainment industry. Think of the the show on, I think it's Showtime, The Deuce. Have you watched it? Uh-huh. I oh. haven't. I was just reading about it and uh, saw that the writer is, um, what's his name? Simon? David Simon? Okay. Yeah, uh, he's one of the writers. He also uh, worked on The Wire, and The Wire is one of my favorite shows of all time. Oh, look at that. So you will like The Deuce. Yes, I think I will. Yeah, I love it. Um, (laughs) And just researching this episode made me think of that show. Um, So Times Square was the home of adult bookstores, peep shows, and adult video stores. It was the epicenter of the sex industry. It was emblematic of the anything goes decade itself, which any person who grew up or came up in the age of the 80s would understand. But I did not understand this idea of anything goes in the 80s. Beth, I don't know if you can school me, but I watched (laughs) this documentary called Clash Action Park. Oh, yeah. About that um, theme park in New Jersey. Yeah. Where there were basically no rules. They were killing people. People were dying to have some fun. And that people (laughs) kept saying that in the documentary, like anything goes. It was the 80s. And uh, I just just didn't have as many rules back then as we do now yeah well look at that uh (laughs) over in the meatpacking district in the 80s there was a there was drug activity and sex work particularly involving trans folks the late 70s and 80s birthed the beginning of street art and graffiti on the streets and in the subways Graffiti, which was an artistic outlet for young people who were also experiencing the turmoil of the times, was misunderstood as dirty and criminal. And street art inspired artists like Keith Haring and Basquiat. Now, OG A True Crime is also an artiste. Uh, are these two um, individuals that you f- have fond of? Um, I, I like Basquiat. Keith Haring is okay. Oh. Yeah, not a big fan of Keith Haring, but yeah, oh. I like Basquiat. 
Okay, that's what's up, Beth. Okay. Uh, in December 1981, around the time Bullock began his spree in New York City, the Department of Sanitation workers went on a 17-day strike. It left the city cluttered with huge piles of garbage. Check the footage. It's a lot. Yeah, I remember uh, when that happened. At, really? As it was happening. Yeah, it was all in the news. Well, I lived in Connecticut. Uh-huh. So um, outside of New York City, close enough to where that was like pretty big news. I, I'm sure it was news, actually national news. Yeah. But yeah, we were watching. It was on the news every single night with all the garbage bags. And yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. What a mess. But yeah. you know what? I mean, p- workers' rights are important. And a yeah. A lot of time the fat cats are like, we don't need to be humane to these people. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yes, you do. (laughs) Yeah. Excuse me. What's that you say? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I fully support that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's pretty American to protest injustice. Um, And, uh, you know, rights and stuff. Uh, The workers were demanding pay increases, better health benefits and sick days. When it was all said and done, the sanitation workers got an overall package increase of $90 a week and more than 100,000 tons of garbage accumulated on the sidewalks and alleys during the strike. Yikes, that's a lot of garbage. Mm -hmm. Uh There was a spike in homicides in the early 1980s with a peak of 1,814. That's a lot of homicides. Yeah. In 1981. In general, crime rates in New York City spiked in the 80s and the early 90s as the crack epidemic hit, but they have been dropping since 1991. And contrary to popular belief, as of 2017, New York City has among the lowest crime rates of the major cities in the United States. Wow. I mean, I think people think uh, New York City is still kind of wild and crime ridden but yeah it's got a pretty low crime rate yeah and um part of my research involved uh, like um this guy uh and he's he's in our show notes but he chronicles the change in new york in the 80s to like the you know the 2000s and right just how stark the difference is amazing like, yeah it is incredible it doesn't even look like the same place so yeah i mean that makes sense what you just said right Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. 
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Um, Now we're going to get into uh, the early life of David Bullock. Uh, David Bullock was born on November 13th, 1960 in New York City. I believe that makes him a Scorpio. Uh, Don't don't fact me on that. I think so, too. Okay. Uh, He was placed in the foster care system at a very early age. There are some reports that he tortured animals and that he tortured other members of his foster family by throwing knives between their toes. Um, That is a really specific thing. I I don't know what it means. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I. I don't have any words. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is um, the game that boys would play. Um, I don't know if you ever. Yeah. With the knife in between your finger. Between your fingers. Yeah. 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 Um, that's the only thing I can think of. But between their toes. Uh, I don't know. It seems like uh, you wouldn't be able to. Everybody to would do lose that. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody would. Yeah. <laughs> But it also sounds strangely like something my brother would do. Whoa, Beth. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. But, but man, that is, yeah, that is a, a hell no. I won't go and I'm play not that playing game. that game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> David Bullock's trouble with the law began when he was still an adolescent. In February 1977, he was arrested in Monroe, New York, on charges of criminal mischief and petty larceny. Then in July of 1977, he pleaded guilty in Manhattan to attempted grand larceny, and he was committed to a home for delinquent youths, receiving a conditional discharge in November. A burglary arrest in January 1978 led to his adjudication as a youthful offender in Goshen, New York. Over the next three years, Bullock's criminal life escalated slowly, and he eventually ended up making his way as a sex worker. The exact nature of Bullock's sexuality is unclear. Um, He may have been bisexual, and uh, he may have been struggling with his sexuality. We don't know for sure. He may even have been straight. Maybe. Maybe. Um, Never know. But sexuality is on a spectrum, and, um, you know. We don't. We just don't. We know just don't know. Sure. Yeah. Um, but now we're going to dive into the timeline. Splish splash. So on December 4th, 1981, James Weber, 42, who was a principal performer with the Light Opera of Manhattan, was driving through Central Park after leaving the theater when he was stopped by David Bullock under some unknown pretense. His car was later found with the door open, keys in the ignition and the lights still on. Bullock would later admit that he did not even know Mr. Weber. That's the scariest kind of crime, right? The, the yeah. When you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, Bullock later claimed that he went to the park to shoot some birds, saw Weber, and just shot him in the head with his 38 caliber revolver that his roommate Michael Winley had given him a month earlier for his birthday. He then pulled Weber's pants down, took $200 from his pants pocket, and fled. On December 13th, 1981, Bullock picked up Edwina Atkins, 23, a female sex worker, and took her to the scene of the murder of James Weber in Central Park. He allegedly told her about the murder, and she, quote, laughed in his face, refusing to believe the story. 
I I mean, if somebody told me that they murdered some, I mean, I think that would be your first reaction. Like, haha, you're joking. Yeah, that's like, funny. Stop fucking yeah. around. Haha. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and that's what I imagine happened yeah. in this case. But I, I think he took it a different way. Well, here goes. The two went to Edwina's apartment, smoked marijuana, and I like to say cannabis, um, okay. not marijuana. Um, and uh, welcome to Culture Corner. <laughs> um, okay, so this, the scientific name, like the, it's called cannabis, right? And there are smarter people can, than me who can articulate this. But um, the term marijuana, I think, was used to scare people that the drug was harmful and that black and brown people were using it. And when what, maybe it was the early 30s, 40s and 50s, the government started saying, like, beware of the marijuana and here are the people that are using it. And it sort of has this negative connotation. And so... I prefer to call it cannabis. I'm not the word police. I just <laughs> prefer That's your preference. Cannabis. Okay. That's my preference. Okay, so All right. the two smoked cannabis and had sex. Afterwards, Bullock said that he realized that he had told her too much. So he covered her face with a pillow, shot her in the head, and then set her apartment on fire. What? Yeah, he was trying to um, hide her murder by burning up her apartment, but it didn't work. It didn't work. But by the way, I think that this was also something that was going on in New York at the time is landlords who felt like they were losing money by having their properties occupied by um, in, in poor neighborhoods were either torturing them, hiring somebody to torture them or doing it themselves so they could get the insurance money in bail. I see. Don't fact check me on that. I've seen it in a movie and I think it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On December 15th, Bullock met Stephen Glenn Hassel, 29, a partner in a Wall Street investment firm, Hassel and Levy. Hassel took Bullock to his apartment in Manhattan, where after sex, Bullock shot and killed him by putting a gun to his head and pulling the trigger while Stephen lay in bed. He later said he killed Hassel, quote, to amuse myself. Now that is very disturbing and um, a sign of a psychopath, no? I mean, I watched the the show Signs of a Psychopath and I think that's what those forensic psychologists would say is... Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. That is fucked up. That's what I'd say. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Listen, you all heard it here first from the OG of True Crime. That is fucked up. fucked up. Yeah, make it official. Um, so Bullock claimed that he did not take anything from Stephen's apartment, that there was nothing to take, and that he would, quote, would not wear a dead man's clothes, end quote. He started some fires in the apartment, but it doesn't sound like the place was torched. On December 22nd, Heriberto Morales, 50, took Bullock home after a Christmas party. Bullock said he'd known Heriberto for over a year. Heriberto Mm. began decorating his Christmas tree. In Bullock's words, he, quote, started messing with the Christmas tree, telling me how nice the Christmas tree was. So I shot him. Um, Seems like a reasonable reaction. Very much so for a psychopath. Now, like I said, I shouted out this show and now I feel like I'm kind of expert adjacent. And, <laughs> and you call him as you see him. I call him as I see him. And this guy sounds like a psychopath. I'm going to move on, class. Uh, <laughs> he later said that he shot Morales because he did things I did not like, which is something a psychopath would do and that he shot him in the christmas spirit uh i am very (laughs) familiar with the christmas spirit and that ain't it uh and that made him feel good uh it's giving him good vibes y'all uh i even said merry christmas to him as i fired the shot how nice Um, merry christmas motherfucker yeah (laughs) i mean 
I feel like I've seen this happen in a movie scene. In a movie, somewhere. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, that's what I'm I'm seeing. Like, uh, who's that guy? <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, or the somebody Here's like Johnny that. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Here's Johnny. Merry Christmas. Uh, woo, Merry Christmas. Uh, he said. Bullock then opened Morales's Christmas gifts and then set the place on fire. I forgot to verify that. Okay, don't fact check us on that one. <laughs> He may or may not have set it on fire. He, may, uh, he, he seemed to like to set things on fire. Yeah. Well, this can't continue for long, can it? Well, let's see. Okay. The very next day on December 23rd, Bullock killed his roommate, Michael Winley, the guy who gave him his gun for his birthday. Oh, okay. Michael, age 28, was relaxing on his bed when Bullock got on the bed with him and Michael told him to get off. That made Bullock angry and he started thinking about other things Michael had done that made him angry. Again, this is according to Bullock. He went into the bathroom and took all of the bullets out of the gun except for one. He then spun the cylinder you know, because it's a revolver, I guess theoretically playing a sort of Russian roulette, but that Michael knew nothing about this game. Yeah, that's not how you play. <laughs> nope. <laughs> he then went to Michael, put a pillow over his head, held him down and pulled the trigger. The gun went off and Michael was dead. Bullock then tied up the body, carried it outside to a car, drove to the East River and dumped it. Michael's body was later found in the East River on March 11th, 1982. Now, we've all had roommates, right? That we, <laughs> that made us angry, right? Like, you know, you yeah. dropped my blow dryer in the toilet. You, um, you chew too loud. You ate all my macaroni and cheese. <laughs> you, um, your alarm goes off and you never turn it off. You refuse um, to do your dishes. Yeah, you left all those top ramen bowls in the sink. Um, <laughs> like, but I, I, you know, I. But this is not the way to to deal this with that. Just no. ain't it. And now, especially COVID, right? We're stuck with people we live with that we don't like very much and piss <laughs> us off to the nth degree but i don't know that i've thought you know what today's the day yeah this is not a legit way to deal with it yeah this is yeah this is not how you resolve conflicts with your roommates um so don't don't be like bullock hashtag don't be like bullock uh so um according to bullock a few days after michael's murder he was at a pool hall when it was raided by the police he put his 38 on a windowsill where police found it and confiscated it, but were unable to determine who owned it. So when on January 4th, 1982, Bullock robbed Eric Michael Fuller, 28, at Mount Morris Park in Harlem, he was carrying a sawed-off shotgun instead of the 38. Eric was with another man, and Bullock came up behind the two. Tis the season for a murder. Tis the season for a murder. Tis the season for a... I don't know where I'm going, but I was feeling like holiday, holiday vibes, yeah. right? They're coming up. Should have um, saved this one for Christmas. Oh, right. Oh, well, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so he told the two men not to move, rob them, shot Eric in the back with the sawed off shotgun and fled. It is believed that Eric was David's only straight male victim and the motive was robbery. He was also Bullock's last victim. So now we are going to get into the investigation and arrest. Hit it, Beth. All of the victims were shot with a 38 caliber revolver, except Eric Michael Fuller, who was shot with a sawed off shotgun. According to one article, police formed a task force and worked closely with the gay community to track down the murderer. Um, that was according to just one article, and I, I gave it kind of a side eye. Mm, a side eye <laughs> from Beth beats any any other side eye um, than anybody could ever give. Um I just uh, <laughs> the sawed off shotgun thing is so intense. Yeah. Um it's all very intense. Yes, it right? is, but it's sawed off shotgun. It's pretty that's nuts, man. Yeah. 
Um, but Bullock was arrested on a fluke when on January 14th, police came looking for his roommate, Michael Winley, who had a warrant out for his arrest. Bullock was the only one at the apartment when police came looking for Michael. It's not clear why they took Bullock in, if they thought he was Michael or that he had some information about Michael or what, but they took him into custody and police then interrogated him for 17 hours. And during this questioning, Bullock confessed to the six murders. Bullock was charged with six counts of murder on January 15th. He told detectives that he had tried to shoot four more people, but he, quote, might have missed, end quote. (laughs) He had no other details to give, no bodies or complaints, and uh, no additional charges were filed. And now it's time for the trial, y'all. What do you got, Beth? Initially, Bullock pleaded not guilty, but after the court ruled that his videotaped confession to the police would be admissible, on October 26, 1982, in a surprise move, Bullock pleaded guilty to the six murders. Uh, Justice Barton Roberts asked Bullock to take the stand and describe the killings. He did so in what reporters at the time called, quote, a smirkingly casual manner, end quote. And what did you call it before? Duping oh, delight? Duping delight. Yeah. yeah. And he, quote, occasionally chuckled, uh, end quote, during the retelling. Bullock told the judge that he was a sex worker, that he had been responsible for at least 100 robberies, and that he had been stealing credit cards for the past five years. Asked if he felt remorse for the killings, he said no. Asked if he thought he would kill again, he also answered no. Although he also told the judge that, quote, killing makes me happy, and that, quote, it was fun. Well, everybody, that's all folks, right? (laughs) I mean... Uh, they do tell you to swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the yeah. truth will help you guys. I've actually never heard a murderer be so honest about <laughs> why what? they killed. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a first for you? <laughs> I think so. I mean, he's like just telling it like it is. Telling oh, it, it like it happy. is. That, yeah. that blew I my liked mind. It. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, like I think we I, we did a culture corner, corner earlier about people do, engaging in, in theft and sex work right to survive. Um, right. It sounds like he was doing at first, right? Then, oh, yes, yeah. The murder thing took a whole news put a whole new spin on, on his yeah. just to get by. Uh, Bullock's defense attorney Joseph Klemper asked the judge to give Mr. Bullock whatever compassion is possible, Your Honor. Justice Roberts called Bullock a self-appointed angel of death, a monster and a viper when he sentenced Bullock on November 29th, 1982. Bullock was sentenced to 150 years, six consecutive 25 years to life terms, one for each victim. In pretrial interviews, a psychiatrist diagnosed Bullock with antisocial personality disorder. Which is psychopathy. Why? So you were right. OG of true crime. Why didn't you give me the points when I go saying it? I was waiting on the end. (laughs) Come on, man. Um, You got it. You you nailed it. Thank you, OG of true crime. Um, I want to do the angel sound effect. (laughs) I did it. All my dreams have come true. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Now I'm a true crime G. (laughs) You're OG and I'll be little G. Little G. Yeah. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, Bullock is currently housed at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora. (gasps) Whoa. Escape from Dannemora fame. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Not awesome. I just... I like the movie. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and also the just that town kind of fascinates me. Uh-huh. How everything is just like built around the prison there. Yeah. Yeah. Like all and- of the economy is built around the prison. Yeah. And. It's so cold there in the winter. Like, it's just not a very nice place to live. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say that's kind of how um, pr- the prison industrial complex is one of the ways it maintains itself. Right. They hire a lot of people 
they uh, sentence a lot of people to fill the beds in, jo- in those jails or, or prisons. And the cycle continues. You get rid of the prisons, right, with prison reform, but all these people are going to be out of a job. And how will the right. economy continue in Danamora? I guess and that's similar like to, to Florence, uh, Arizona. Right. Where and, there's a prison and like that everybody who lives there works at the prison somehow or another. Right. And all of the prisoners um, are counted on the U.S. census. So oh, wow. let the, the um, governors and state legislatures get to use them um, when out resources are allocated um, for those communities. So they oh, get wow. extra bodies who count as bodies but right. they don't have any rights and, you know, they don't get to vote in that kind of thing. So right. anyway, that's crazy. It's more fuckery. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, I also found interesting uh, David Bullock's earliest release date is listed as January 9th. Very specific. Twenty one thirty two. Wow. Yeah. So you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I mean, if he can live another uh, hundred and uh, what, 12 years. (laughs) Man, (laughs) I really I mean, I wonder if we need, you know what, I'm going to let's now we're going to get into what our our takeaways and what we think made him snap. So I would love like an interview about this guy or maybe a movie, right? Because New York at that time was so crazy. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, you couldn't write it. <laughs> and on top of that, insert somebody like Bullock committing such a, like, I don't know what the word is, just heinous, heinous, but the speed and um, veracity at which he was committing these crimes is really um, staggering. Like, it wasn't to me when I saw the word spree, I didn't want to put it in the stats because it wasn't like he did them all in one day or one. Right. But it, it was kind of a spree. Yeah. I guess so. Um, also, uh, it sounds like he had a pretty rough childhood, right? Yeah. The foster care system is not ideal now. Um, uh, but I can imagine that it was so much worse and horrific in the sixties yeah. and seventies when he was coming up. Um, I also, uh, so I can imagine that, um, the trauma that he may have had in his home, in the home of his family of origin, and then being ripped away from that, you know, it was what he knew, right. Good or bad. And then drop being dropped into a system with people that don't care about you in conditions that may have been even worse. Um, and it sounds like New York at the time was wild, just a powder keg. Right. And there's this classic hip hop song, uh, and it goes, don't push me. Cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. <laughs> it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. And that's what I thought of when I was looking into this case. The poverty, the crime, the police brutality um, that contributed to broken families, broken systems, law enforcement, the legal system, you know, housing, all the things, drug abuse people were engaging in to sort of escape from their realities. Um, It just got me thinking um, just how terrible it must have been at that time. And then I was also thinking um, of all the beautiful things that were born from the struggle at this time, hip hop, graffiti art, street dancing, ballroom culture, all in the late 70s and 80s because of the hardship that poor people and black people and brown people and marginalized people were facing every single day. And I think um, everyone in New York at the time was just living close to the edge, trying not to lose their heads. But you mix in Bullock's beginnings and you end up with a person who dove into the psychopath swimming pool uh, <laughs> and never looked back. That statement he made to the court seems to me childish, but also like he was a psychopath. I get all the points right. of the day in right. that he had no empathy for the victims and he got pleasure and enjoyment from um doing the things that he did so yeah yeah and i i think he did snap um and it like you said it sounds like his life was pretty terrible mm-hmm. and i guess when you have a super shitty life and see no way out of it killing people when you're in a bad mood might seem okay mm. you know 
conflict and, resolution. Yes. <laughs> you don't, nobody kill your roommate just because they make you angry. Sorry to cut you off, but just that was crazy. they so loud. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the first murder was probably spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it turned out that he liked it. Mm-hmm. And so then he found it was an outlet for his rage. And uh, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. He just had no way of dealing with his rage from his childhood, probably. And once he found out that he enjoyed killing, he just kept doing it. Kept doing it. Um, yeah. Right. And he was caught on a fluke. So, like, yeah. who he knows what would have happened next? Also, right. I don't know why, but this made me think of that scene in the Sandlot when they were having a sleepover in the treehouse and they were talking about the dog eating people and he, <laughs> uh, the the kid with the glasses goes, and he did. And he liked it. A lot. <laughs> and that, that's what... That's when you said, yeah, he probably liked it. That's what yeah. that's where my that's head That's what went. you thought of. Yeah. And he did. <laughs> he, and he liked, liked it. it. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty much uh, yeah, the story. Yeah, that's what happened. Yep. That's you heard what me here, folks. Uh, Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're gonna get. You're gonna hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing four one one, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) A lot. Sorry. (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So this comes from our boo May, who we mentioned earlier in the show, a queer black British woman of color living in California who says, I'm always telling people how not to get murdered. Some (laughs) call it anxiety. I call it staying alive in America. Amen. But one trick I do is keep a taser in my car. Say one more again for the folks in the back. Keep a taser in my car. When I step out of my car, I clack it. A few times, clack, clack. So whatever (laughs) asshole is staring me down knows I'm not to be fucked with. And I do the same thing when I'm stepping out of a building or store late at night. Clack, clack. Uh, It's like, brah, (laughs) but clack, clack. (laughs) Also, I constantly share my location with my close friends. They'll be alerted if if my location sharing is stopped. Okay, bye. That is, those are fire (laughs) tips. Let me get my hip hop air horn out. I put it away too prematurely. What am I thinking? (laughs) 
<laughs> May, thank you for helping us all make it to yeah. another day. See thank the light you, of May. another day. Yes. And now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or content about or by any other marginalized groups. Um, I uh, wanted to shout out Unjust and Unsolved. Have you heard of it, Beth? I have not. Well, it is my new favorite. It is a true crime <laughs> podcast focusing on wrongful convictions and the crimes that are consequently left unsolved. Oh, wow. What? Like, yeah. mind blown. The Innocence Project estimates that there are currently over 20,000 innocent people locked away in U.S. prisons. Each way, each week, investigative journalist Maggie Fr- uh, Frelang tells the story of one of those people and takes a deep dive into the crime they were convicted of. Through her original interviews with the convicted, their lawyers, families, and friends, Frelang chronicles each inmate's fight for exoneration and their hope that justice can still be served. And the episode I listened today, the dude was let out of prison after 40 years holy shit um it is such a great podcast super well done it's on the obsessed network so there's a lot of support behind the show a lot of um, production gone into it and it is just really 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 great so cool all right so my uh shout out is a true crime goodie it's a podcast called Hidden, a true crime podcast. Mm-hmm. And from the description, it says the Hidden True Crime Podcast explores the hidden motives behind unimaginable crimes. A forensic psychologist and a journalist who are husband and wife delve into the psychological facets of unthinkable crimes. They journey into the darkest recesses of the human mind and the unconscious motivations that drive human behaviors, both good and bad, in order to understand the world and ourselves and it's a fairly new podcast so they don't have a whole lot of episodes and i listened to all of them over the weekend oh dang (laughs) while i was doing you know my uh weekend chores yes as one does (laughs) as one does yeah and right now they're talking exclusively about the Lori and chad daybell who now come again so Lori and chad daybell they're the ones that um they killed her kids and they hid out in Hawaii. Remember they went to Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these are all a bunch of white people. Sorry, everybody. But um, I find that story just fascinating. I want to know what the fuck. So yeah, (laughs) the reason why I really like this podcast and I think I'm going to listen to all the episodes again because the, Yeah, because the guy, the guy is a forensic psychologist. Uh And so he talks a lot about he doesn't diagnose them. He's, you know, because he's a psychologist, they, you know, that's not really something that they do is diagnose people from from afar. Mm -hmm. But he does talk about what may have like um, played into uh, their behaviors, like their childhoods and stuff like that. So I find it absolutely fascinating. That does sound fascinating. And they're going to be doing other cases too. And I thought I might uh, shoot them an email or something and and suggest that they uh, throw some people of color in there as well. Hey, now. Yeah. Look at you, Beth. That's the kind of ally true crime needs. Um, but that it sounds like a really, really great show. It Thank is. You. You're welcome. Um, oh, yes. True crime goodies. So tasty, tasty. <laughs> um, but that's it for today, folks. Why don't you tell us, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash app. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.